Hi, I'm Summer. Remember me? I'm eight. Here we are back on Natural Nature Youth. In this podcast, we will be exploring how together we can educate ourselves on how to preserve, protect, or explore nature. Today, we'll be meeting and talking to Brian Scary. He is an underwater photographer. He goes around to different places of the world to film and photograph things underwater. His work can be seen in magazines and films by National Geographic. The ocean, the best thing about it is you can swim in it, and there's lots of sea creatures to find and explore. First, I will tell you two stories, like I did in the last episode. I will tell you two stories about what I like about the ocean. Okay, story one. One day, I was at the ocean, and I saw this, um, well, it looked like a cloth, but it was see-through, and it looked squishy. I almost touched it, but then I was like, wait, I know what that is. That's a jellyfish. They sting. So I probably shouldn't touch it. Then I called my parents and they were like, wow, you found a jellyfish. And then we went somewhere else around the beach and we saw another jellyfish. And I was like, how are there so many jellyfish? Story two. One day I was swimming in the water at the beach and my dad was swimming with me and we were um like deep in the ocean like i almost could touch but almost but yeah i almost could touch the ground um so we were swimming and i lifted my feet up from the ground and started swimming instead of walking and i felt something brush by my foot and i was like what was that I thought it was like a fish or something that was like, it just seemed creepy. I was like, Dad, was that you? He's like, uh, was what me? And I'm like, did you just touch my foot? He's like, yeah, I touched your foot. And I'm like, oh, that was my dad's leg. (laughs) So that's the two things. Once, um, we were watching shows on Disney Plus and I saw this show called Secrets of the Whales, and I was like, okay, that sounds cool, let's watch it. And we did, and I'm like, who's that guy? And my dad's like, oh, that guy's name is Brian Scary. And he looked up his name, and it turns out Brian Scary lives in York, Maine. And we were like, wait, we live close to him. So we asked him if we could interview him for our podcast, And he invited us to his house. Like, I've never been in a celebrity's house. Like, that was so cool. And he he was very nice and kind. And he knows so much about the ocean. This episode might be longer than the others because he knows so much. So in his studio, I saw trophies a lot of pictures of things he photographed underwater um books 
There was even a picture of him on the beach with his arm around Barack Obama, the president. And I think I saw like a fish's bones. Like that's so cool. Brian also talked about pollution in the water, which it's so important for us to keep it clean. Brian Scary has been taking pictures of things underwater for years and years, and he's become one of the most famous wildlife photographers in the world. I was very lucky to have this conversation with him, and I'd like to share it with you right now. So let's do the interview with him. introduce yourself. Sure. My name is Brian Scarry, and I am a wildlife photographer and film producer director specializing in ocean wildlife and underwater subjects. How did you first get interested in photographing things in the ocean? Well, that's a really great question, Summer. Thank you very much. Um, you know, I grew up in a little town in Massachusetts that was not on the ocean, but in the summertime, my parents would take me to the beaches of Rhode Island and Cape Cod and New Hampshire and Maine, and I really fell in love with the ocean as a little boy. And, you know, I remember in those days reading National Geographic magazine and watching documentaries on TV, the old Jacques Cousteau shows and so forth, and there was just something magical about the ocean. You know, I can remember coming home on those summer days in my parents' uh, car, being in the back seat, all sunburned and salty, and having this mix of emotions. You know, in one, in one hand, I was at peace. I was very calm from having a day at the ocean. But on the other part of my brain, I was thinking about, um, you know, what was lying out beneath those waves? What was the mysteries that were waiting to be discovered? So when I was 15 years old, I first started scuba diving. I had a friend in high school who, whose parents had some dive gear, and we went in my swimming pool. We had a swimming pool in my backyard, and I remember sitting in three feet of water, breathing underwater for the first time, and it was just the coolest thing. So, you know, in the beginning, I just wanted to explore the ocean. I wasn't really thinking about photography, but, but that's how it started. Yeah, I like swimming a <laughs> lot. <laughs> Why is the deep ocean so fascinating? Well, you know, I would answer that by saying, um, first of all, that we live on an ocean planet. You know, if you look at a picture of Earth from space, if you look at some of the photographs from NASA, uh, for example, and, and you look at Earth from space, I think you instantly see two things. One, that our planet is this beautiful blue jewel just floating out in the darkness of space, like a, like a really finely um, beautiful gem. But we also instantly see that we very much live on a water planet. Now, you might learn in school, for example, that about three quarters, about 72% of Earth's surface is ocean, is water. But here's another statistic that might even be more important. 98% 
almost 100%, 98% of Earth's biosphere, which is where life can exist on Earth, the livable, habitable part of our planet, is water, is ocean. So even though we are land creatures and see our world from that land viewpoint, we very much live on an ocean planet. So when you consider that every other breath that a human being takes comes from the ocean. Most of the oxygen we all breathe, no matter where you live, comes from the ocean and how much food we get from it and shipping and all the things that we do with the ocean. It becomes really obvious that exploring the world's oceans and protecting it is really important. So for me, I just love being in the ocean. I think many humans have a, a desire to be in the ocean, you know, but Aside from the, the, the personal interests I have in the ocean, I think it's important that human beings understand this ocean planet and protect it. What kind of equipment do you use to um, photograph animals underwater and how do you keep it dry? It's a great question. You know, um, first of all, I, I'll talk a little bit about the diving equipment that I use, and then I'll talk about the camera equipment, if that's okay. Um, so with the diving equipment, I either use scuba equipment, which is self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. Scuba is a, an acronym, actually, for those words. And basically, that means you wear a scuba tank on your back, and you have a regulator in your mouth, and there's air in the tank, just regular air like we breathe here. But um, you can breathe it underwater, and that's what the regulator does. And you can only stay underwater with a scuba tank, you know, as long as that air supply lasts. And that depends on how deep you are. So if you're in 20 feet of water, you can stay longer. If you're in 100 feet of water, it doesn't last as long. But I'm using scuba gear. The other way I dive is just breath hole diving. Free, it's called free diving or snorkeling. And that's what I do with whales and dolphins and very skittish animals. Whales don't like bubbles. So, you know, my scuba gear would give off bubbles and that might frighten the whales. And I would be a little bit heavy, too heavy to try to swim and keep up with them. So when I'm usually diving and photographing whales, I just free dive. I hold my breath. Now, I've never actually timed myself to see how long I can hold my breath uh, when I'm out there doing this stuff, but I'm guessing that when I'm really at, at the top of my game, maybe two minutes or maybe three on a really good day, but that's pushing it. Um, but, you know, I can be very uh, nimble and I can be free and I can, you know, come up and down and if the whales allow me into the world, I can get close. So those are two different ways that I, I dive. And then I use different thicknesses of suits, everything from a dry suit in the really cold weather to thick wetsuits to thin wetsuits, depending where in the world I'm, I'm working. Camera equipment is when I'm shooting still photographs, just pictures, I'm using regular 35 millimeter cameras like we would use here on land. So these days I'm using digital cameras. I used to use film, but they're digital cameras that go inside an underwater housing. So there are companies that manufacture these aluminum housings, the ones I use, and they're made specifically for a certain camera. So I happen to be a, a Nikon shooter, so I'm using Nikon cameras. I'm putting them inside a housing that's made specifically for it so I can access all the buttons and dials, but I can't change lenses underwater. So I kind of have to know what I'm hoping to photograph before I go in the water. So if I put a wide angle lens on to photograph a whale, um, that's all I can do. And if I have a macro lens on to shoot a little sea slug or something and then a whale swims by, well, I'm out of luck. I can't take a picture of the whale because I only have a macro lens. So you, you really have to think about what it is you want to do 
as an underwater photographer before you go out to take pictures? Yeah, I would. I would do that. Yeah. Mm. Are you ever scared of things that could hurt you, like sharks? Boy, that's a really important question. Um, yes, I think that it's important to always have a healthy uh, degree of fear when we go into the ocean. Not because it's so dangerous necessarily, but because it's an alien environment. You know, we are land creatures. We, we need air to breathe and we need life support equipment if we're going to go in the ocean, like I just described with scuba gear or holding our breaths even. Um, so whenever you go into what could be considered a, a an alien environment or a hostile environment, you should have a healthy respect for where you are. It's like an astronaut in outer space. So I am very careful of that. And yes, there is always the presence of, you know, wild animals around. Most of the time, that's never a problem. But I think we we can't be cavalier about that. We can't take that, you know, without being serious about it. So um, over the years that I've been doing this, many years I've been diving and photographing animals, um, I've had countless fantastic experiences, but maybe there's three or four times where sharks got a little bit too frisky or a saltwater crocodile was coming a little bit too close or some other animal, and I just felt the need to get out. And I think, you know, I think it's important to listen to that little voice that we have inside of us. Maybe it's a primal thing that goes back to our ancient ancestors that, you know, we know when animals are behaving uh, a little threatening. You know, it's like walking into your neighbor's yard on one day and you see their dog and the dog is wagging its tail and it seems very friendly. Another day, maybe it's 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 more angry or it's just not being as friendly. And you sense those those feelings. So I do that with animals. You know, I look for certain cues with animals. If it's a shark, you know, if they're swimming lazily around me or if they're very agitated and their pectorals are in a certain position, then I know, you know, they're they're not happy and I just need to get out and wait for a better day. Yeah, I would wait until they're not mad or lazy because then then they won't try to hurt you. Exactly. Yep, you have to really be paying attention to that. If you photograph whales, how do you earn their trust? Boy, that's a really good question. You know, nobody's ever really asked me that and and that's very important part of what I do. You know, um I would preface my my answer by saying that Underwater photography is quite unique in, in the world of wildlife photography in the sense that, as I just described, I can only stay underwater as long as my air supply would last. So maybe in a you know perfect situation, if I'm in shallow water, I could stay underwater for an hour or maybe an hour and a half or, or only two or three minutes if I'm holding my breath. I also can't use a telephoto lens. You know, a wildlife photographer, if I'm, if I'm photographing lions in Africa or tigers in India or something, I could sit in a camouflaged blind like a tent and then I could have a 600 millimeter lens on a tripod and I could wait for a month for some elusive animal to wander past and then make a picture or shoot video. But I can't do that underwater. I have to get underwater I can only stay under for a limited amount of time and I have to get very close. Even in the clearest of water, I can't use a long lens. The water is never that clear. So I usually have to get within 
you know, maybe 10 feet or six feet or less of my subjects, whether it's sharks or whales or pretty much anything. So what that means is that the animals have to sort of allow me into their world. I could never swim fast enough to chase a shark or a sea turtle or a seal. You know, they they could outswim me any day of the week. So I have to gain their trust, as you said. And the way I do that is by being very patient and sort of quiet. I try to calm myself down, even if things are exciting. If there's seals all around me, I might be exciting. You know, my, my heart starts to race. I'm, I'm happy. But I try to calm down. I think of other things. You know, I think of being home and watching TV or laying on the couch or something just to calm myself down. Um, because I think animals sense that. You know, I think your dog knows if you're uh, agitated or nervous. And I think predators, you know, predator animals like sharks or crocodiles or something, I think they sense fear as well. So you have to be very calm. You have to be confident. And when it's when it's whales, I'm not worried about whales hurting me in any way, but I do want them to trust me. And that's why when you said, how do you gain their trust? That's such a perfect way of phrasing that question because, you know, they do trust you if you're not threatening. So I never swim quickly. I don't charge in, you know, when I get in the water, um, I'm very quiet. I move in slowly over time. And if they see me and then swim away, that's okay. I'll just try again another time. But I think you have to be patient give the animal time, and quite often they are curious and they will come over to me. Hmm. Are there animals you or creatures you want to see but you haven't yet seen? Oh, yeah. There's so many animals that I would still like to see. Or there are some animals that I've worked with that really still intrigue me and I would love to spend more time with them. So, you know, among the animals that I've never really worked with... um, include stuff like polar animals, animals like walruses. I'm fascinated with walruses. I, I've got friends who filmed them and, and photographed them, and they can be quite aggressive and dangerous as well, so you have to be careful. But I've seen walruses. I've been in the Arctic close to them on a boat, but I never got underwater with them. So that's something. I worked with narwhals, um, you know, the, the unicorn of the sea when I was doing Secrets of the Whales, uh, and one other time too. But... Um, I didn't spend a lot of time with them, and they were pretty elusive, so I'd love to go back and do more work with with those animals. Um, Among other animals, you know, the whales that I spent time with, especially during Secrets of the Whales, uh, I would love to spend more time with all of those, especially the orca, which I think is, you know, the most intelligent animal in the ocean, and, you know, you could spend the rest of your life working with orca and never figure out everything, but I think there's a lot more there for me, uh, and the deep ocean interests me too, you know. I think something like 95% of the deep ocean here on Earth is unexplored. We don't really know much about it, and it really is a frontier. You know, we know more about the moon or maybe even the surface of Mars than we do about our deep ocean here on Earth. So, um, And yet, you know, we're sending fishing, trawling nets down there deep and so forth, and we're disturbing these ecosystems. So I think we need to study the deep ocean here on Earth as well. So that is something that interests me. Yeah, I'd really be interested in narwhals. Yeah, they're so cool, aren't they? Yep. Do you know why the narwhal didn't invite the unicorn to his birthday party? No. He wanted to keep it real. (laughs) (laughs) That's a little narwhal unicorn humor there. (laughs) It's a good one. 
Have you ever seen or discovered a creature that no one has seen or discovered? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, Do you know that um, I photographed an animal that had never been photographed before alive? Um, But before I get to that, let me just say that although I have never discovered a new species, I've been with scientists who have. And this happens actually quite frequently. We don't hear about it because it's not a huge deal, I guess. But um, in places like Indonesia or the Philippines, where there's tremendous biodiversity, there's a lot of different kinds of fish and animals around, uh, scientists routinely, regularly, discover new species. And I was in Indonesia on an assignment, on a project once, and I was diving with a, a marine biologist, an ichthyologist who was a fish expert. And on a number of the dives, he would find new species of fish. Sometimes he would collect them so that he could, you know, describe it for science. And a lot of times these are just little reef fish that, you know, look very much like other reef fish to me, but he was able to know, no, this is one that is not yet in the scientific textbooks. So he would, you know, be able to name it, and he's probably named, you know, dozens of of new species. But I never did that, but I was with him when he did it. The animal that I photographed that was known about but had never been photographed alive is an animal called the oar fish. It's spelled O-A-R fish, like a like you're rowing an oar, a boat with an oar. And I was in the Bahamas photographing sharks. I was photographing silky sharks. I was up near the surface, but the water was very deep. It was thousands of feet deep, or at least a couple thousand feet deep, I think. Maybe more than that, uh, where I was. And out in the distance, the visibility was good. It was blue water. And I remember looking out, and I saw this thing. I didn't even know it was a living animal. It was about 9 or 10 feet long. It was about 3 inches wide. So it was kind of like a sword. Imagine a a shiny sword just hanging in the water column. And when I finally decided to go closer to it, I could see it had big giant eyes and it had like a crest on its head, like a rooster, like, you know, this, this reddish colored thing on top of its head. And it had a dorsal fin that ran the whole length of its body. So a nine or 10 foot long dorsal fin that was sort of undulating. And it had these very thin almost like fishing line thin, monofilament thin appendages that kind of ran out on either side. So it was like a cross. Its body was three inches wide, 10 feet long, and these very thin things. And it was just drifting through the water. And I had no idea what it was. And I was only able to make three photographs of it, one that was better than the other two. And this was back in 1996, so kind of a long time ago. I wasn't working for National Geographic then, but I sent it to National Geographic after I did some research, and I said, I think it's an oarfish. So they sent it to a university called William & Mary, where there was an expert in oarfishes, and he wrote back and said, yes, it's the first time this animal had ever been photographed. And he also said that this is the animal that inspired sea serpent legends, that if you go back and read the old logbooks of sailors long ago, they would often talk about seeing an animal with the head of a horse and a flaming red mane. I think they were taking a little literary license there, but the scientists tell us that the animal they were looking at was the oarfish, and only dead ones had ever been observed by science. And it, it has the distinction of being the longest bony fish in the world. They're are confirmed uh, reports of 26-foot-long um, oarfish, and there are anecdotal reports, you know, rumors, of ones that are 60 feet long, but very little is known about them. And I got to make the first picture of the, 
the legendary sea serpent, the, the oarfish. So that became a big deal back in 1996 in the fish science world. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it was very cool. I wish I could do that again. That was a, a great experience. How have you observed whales to be similar to us? Ah, a question near and dear to my heart. How have I observed whales being similar to us? You know, when I created this project called Secrets of the Whales, it came about over many years um, because back in 2008, I did a story for National Geographic about the most endangered whale in the world, the North Atlantic right whale. And I've really proposed that story as purely an endangered species story. I wanted to shine a bright light on the fact that these whales might go extinct in our lifetime. There was only three or 400 of them left. But it was while I was working on that story that the scientists told me another story that happened a few years before I began. And they said that, you know, the right whales that live here in New England and along the east coast of the United States, there's only three or 400 of them. And we pretty much know where they are at any time of the year. In the summertime, they're up in Canada, in the Bay of Fundy. In the spring, they're in Cape Cod Bay here in New England. And in the wintertime, they're down in Florida. So any time of the year, you mostly know where they are. But several years before I began my story, a North Atlantic right whale was seen in Norway over in Europe. It had swum all the way across the Atlantic Ocean from, let's say, New England. And it was hanging out in this very specific place in Norway. And nobody could figure out why he was there. They hadn't seen a right whale in Norway in over 400 years. So somebody took a picture of it, and they sent it to the New England Aquarium, where they maintain a database of every single right whale. And they looked up their database, and they said, yeah, we know who that whale is. It's an adult male, and his name is Porter. And they couldn't figure out why he was there. But eventually, he swam back. He joined his friends in Cape Cod Bay, and nobody could understand. It was just a mystery. A few years later... A German historian wrote a scientific paper or a history paper that kind of cast this incident in a mysterious new light. In this historian's paper, he revealed that in that very place in Norway where Porter was hanging out for a few weeks, there used to be a whaling factory back in the 1600s, and the whales they used to hunt in Norway were the North Atlantic right whales. And it gave a chill to the scientists. These scientists who are not, you know, prone to fantasy or, you know, conspiracy theories, they just focus on the science, but they could think of no other reason than maybe whales, these whales, pass on stories generation to generation, and that Porter had swam across the ocean to go see this place where his ancestors had been killed. Now, it could either be pure coincidence or maybe there's some truth to that. So that got me thinking over 10 years ago that there is this sort of cultural aspect to whales. And in more recent years, I was talking to scientist friends who study whales and reading scientific papers and reading books. And a lot of the latest and greatest science that was being published was revealing that whales have culture. Now, what does that mean? Because we usually talk about animal behavior. So what's the difference between behavior and culture? Well, I have a whale biologist friend who said the difference between behavior and culture is this. He said, behavior is what we do. Culture is how we do it. So, for example, most humans eat food with utensils. That's behavior. But whether you use knives and forks or chopsticks, 
is your culture. So it turns out whales are doing the same thing. They're not using chopsticks, but they're doing things differently. So within a, a genetically identical species, whether it's sperm whales or humpbacks or orca, they are the same animal, but they're doing things differently based on how they were taught by their parents or their grandparents or where in the world they live. And some of the ways that I was able to illustrate that for Secrets of the Whales was through things like feeding behavior or feeding strategies. So orca, for example, they could eat pretty much anything they want. They're very smart and they're very capable and they could eat anything they want in the ocean. But the orcas that live in New Zealand like to eat stingrays, and they have figured out a way to catch stingrays, and they are the only orca in the world that do that method of, of hunting. The orca that live in Norway like to eat a fish called herring, and they work cooperatively to feed on herring. The ones that the orca that live in Patagonia, Argentina like to eat sea lion pups, and they figured out how to catch sea lion pups. And again, it's two families of orca that know how to do this. They're the only ones in the world who do that. So it's it's kind of like having an, an international cuisine preference, ethnic foods. You know, in New England, we in Maine, we eat lobsters. And, you know, in another part of the world, they eat crepes or something. Well, it's, it's not so different with whales. They also, whales, will segregate by language. So the biologist uh, that I mentioned, this whale biologist named Shane Garrow, who has been studying sperm whales in the Caribbean Ocean uh, for the last 16 or 17 years, he's identified that there are many families of sperm whales that speak the same dialect. They're called CODAs, C-O-D-A. It's kind of like a Morse code language, but it is their language, basically. And that they don't intermingle with other genetically identical sperm whales that speak another language. When they first meet each other in the ocean, he says, the first thing they do is they say, I am from Dominica. And if the other whale says, I am from Haiti or someplace, they just go their separate ways. So to me, this is like, you know, uh, humans in a big city. You know, we've got the Irish and the Italians, and we've got all these little neighborhoods based on language. Now, in America, you know, we all speak English as well. But, you know, not that long ago, they used to separate by language. You know, they also have singing competitions. Humpback whales have singing competitions. It's kind of the American idol of the sea. And they do all these. They have parenting techniques. You know, uh, in some families, when the mom has to go catch food, she will have a, a single babysitter in the family that watches her young. In others, they have different adult females that take turns. So, you know, even though they are very different than humans, in many respects, they are doing things the same way as us. So my hope was that if I could get people to see the ocean or our planet through the lens of culture with another species, that it would be a game changer, that we would think of our relationship with nature in a new way. Hmm. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Why do you live here in Maine? Out of all the other places you could live to see the ocean, why do you live here? Oh, that's so cool. Well... I grew up in New England, you know, I, I grew up in Massachusetts, but I moved to Maine almost five years ago because I love it here. You know, I, you're right, I suppose I could live anywhere I want, but um, I started my life in New England and I'll probably end my life in New England and I just love it here. I love the, the temp temperate seasons, you know, I love having four seasons, I love the ocean up here. I love the, the people, the food, everything. You know, my family, when, when I started having children, I have two daughters, and I traveled a lot for my work as a photographer, uh, storyteller, and, 
you know, my wife and her family and my family was there, so it was great to have everybody nearby. And now we moved, you know, we only moved about 100 miles away from where I used to live to come here to York. But it's absolutely a beautiful place, and I think there's so many rich stories that can be told here. You know, my current project for National Geographic is about the Gulf of Maine. So um, I enjoy going back in and diving these waters that I started diving over 40 years ago and seeing how it's changed. And it is changing, unfortunately, because of climate. So these are some of the things that I feel a sense of urgency and responsibility to, to tell people about. How have you seen pollution hurt the ocean and sea animals? Mm. Well, you know, Summer, um, I have seen pollution hurting the ocean and sea animals, but I guess in the broader sense, I've seen many things that are hurting our oceans. Some of it is pollution and other things might be a, a form of pollution, but you know, I started diving, uh, as I said, about 40 years ago or so, which might sound like a long time, but the truth is I never dreamed as a young boy when I started scuba diving and exploring the oceans that I would see the kind of change that I have seen, you know, what I would almost describe as geologic change, things that should take a very, very long time, and yet they're happening in a few decades, and now they're happening more rapidly. And I believe firmly, based on the science and what I have seen, that these are what we call anthropogenic stresses. These are things that are happening because of human action. And, you know, for a long time, we didn't know about these things. We didn't know the things that we were doing that were harming the ocean. But today we know, and I feel we we have an obligation to try to fix it. So some of the things that I have seen, for example, when I used to dive here in New England, in the 1970s or 1980s, I would go off a beach in Maine or New Hampshire or Rockport, Massachusetts or wherever, and I would often see big schools of fish, you know, little baby pollock or herring or different kinds of things that I would see routinely. That was common. That was what what was normal back then. I don't see those things today. They're gone. And yet we know because of science, that we have removed 90% of the big fish in the ocean in the last 60 years or so since World War II. We have taken all of the billfish and the tuna and the sharks out of the ocean because of commercial industrialized overfishing. We've gotten way too good at that. So I, I see the evidence of that. You know, when it comes to climate change, we know based on science that humans have expelled, have, have sort of put out into the atmosphere so much carbon because of our automobiles and our factories and all the things that we do. We burn fossil fuels and it goes into the atmosphere, it makes the planet warmer, but it also goes into the ocean. The ocean on planet Earth is the greatest carbon sink that we have on Earth. Now, what does that mean? It means it takes in the carbon and gives us back oxygen, right? We know that plants and trees do this. So that's why we hear that, you know, rainforests and jungles are so important because it gives us oxygen, which is true. But the ocean does it in a bigger way than any other ecosystem on Earth. It takes in more carbon, gives us back every other breath that we take. However, we have dumped so much carbon into the atmosphere that it has changed the ocean's chemistry. It is becoming like acid. When you put too much carbon into salt water, it, it 
it raises the pH level, the acidity level, and that acid now is eroding anything with calcium. So coral reefs or seashells or little animals like pteropods and and zooplankton like copepods, which right whales eat, they have uh, calcium in their skeleton and it's being eroded. So this is a very dangerous situation. We have today, because of that and because of other degradation uh, methods, we have lost 50% of the world's coral reefs. They're gone. They're they're bleached. The the seawater temperature is rising and they're being eroded by acidification. So we're losing this stuff. You know, we dump 18 billion pounds of plastic into the ocean every single year. Think about that. 18 billion pounds of plastic. So, you know, even right here in Maine, the, the current work that I'm doing on the Gulf of Maine, scientists right here in Maine have identified the Gulf of Maine as one of the epicenters, one of the centers of global ocean climate change. They say that it is warming 99% faster than the rest of the global ocean. So this beautiful body of water where we have lobsters and sharks and whales and sea anemones and all these great little animals and critters down there, it's all changing, you know? This, many of the scientific models are saying that in 40 years or more, we might not have lobsters here anymore. That's kind of hard to believe. So these are the things that I have seen in my own lifetime, and it's all because of the things we're doing. So I think we're living at a very special time in history where maybe for the very first time we understand these problems and the solutions. We know ways of fixing it, but we just need to all be on the same page kind of moving forward. We have to have a will to want to change. And I think that's where science and storytelling comes comes into play because human beings are visual creatures. We understand stories. We can see a photograph and remember it for the rest of our lives. So if the photos and the video support science and we can tell good stories, people, I think, you know, will want to do the right thing for our children and their children and for clean air and clean water into the future. So I think that's that's what's important right now at this moment in history, that we understand these problems, things I've seen and things that science is telling us, and we, we move towards solutions. Yeah, we should really make sure that we protect the animals from pollution. Absolutely, because we're connected to them. You know, even though, as I said before, even though we live on land, what happens in the ocean directly affects us. You know, if the oceans stop giving us oxygen, we're going to be in trouble. If we don't have fish to eat, we're going to be in trouble. You know, there's billions of people on the planet that depend on the ocean, so we have to protect it. Most scientists tell us that we need to protect at least 30% of Earth's oceans, maybe more, but let's say at least 30%. Yet today, depending how you look at it, we're maybe only at 3 or 4 or 5% of the oceans that are protected. The rest is wide open for all kinds of, you know, uh, harm. So we, we, we need to want to do a better job, and we can do it. We, we absolutely can do it. And when in the places where we have done it, it has come back. The ocean is resilient. It knows how to heal itself. All we need to do is leave it alone. Yeah. How can kids help preserve, protect, or explore the ocean? Boy, that's such a great question. You know, I think the first thing is to do what you're doing, Summer, and that is uh, doing your homework, understanding, you know, reading about 
the things that interest you. If you're interested in sharks, read about sharks. If you're interested in whales or the ocean or, you know, beaches or estuaries or forests, whatever it is, just read about it because you will learn so much. You can watch documentaries. You can talk to, you know, whoever that might be working in those fields, exactly what you're doing right now. And you become more informed and then you can help spread the word. That's, that's a very basic thing. People like to listen to other people, especially if they have a, a personal story. When I go out and, and do speaking engagements, I'm not preaching to people, you know, don't do this or don't do that. I just tell them the stories. I tell them the things that I'm seeing, and then they can draw their own conclusions. And, and you know, most people will, will draw correct conclusions if they have good information. So I think, you know, kids can... can educate themselves, and, and then share that information. The other thing you can do is, you know, obviously share that information with your parents, right? I mean, if you know that we're dumping 18 billion pounds of plastic into the ocean every year, and that one of the ways that we're doing that is because we drink water bottles every day, you know, if, if you go to the supermarket and you buy a case of water, and each one comes in a plastic bottle, and you drink it once, and then you throw it in the trash... Well, maybe somewhere that's going to end up in the ocean. Maybe not, but it could. In, in many places, that is exactly what happens. So what's a better solution? Well, you get a stainless steel water bottle and you just refill it from the tap or if you go to the airport or the mall or whatever, maybe there's a water fountain and you just fill it up and you don't need to use single-use plastic. So eliminating plastic from your life wherever you can would be a good thing you can do. Now, you know, kids maybe don't have the money, they're not consumers, they're not buying, but you can chat with your your mom and dad and you can just say, I think this is a, a better, this, I would like to have my own water bottle, I'll write my name on it, you know, personalize it, put a sticker on it, whatever, you can make it your own. So being a good consumer is a really good way to do that. You know, I talked to somebody once who told me that when they go to the store, they go to a Best Buy or a, you know, Home Depot or something, and they buy something and it comes in all this plastic. It's, it's like six layers of plastic. They will actually open it at the cashier and take what they want out after they paid for it and then tell the, the cashier, you know, let the owners know, I don't want all this plastic. If everybody did that, word would get back to the manufacturers, the people who are selling these things, that they need to find a better way to package stuff. We can do it. Those are real solutions. You can also educate yourself about what you eat, right? So um, if you like to eat fish, that's great. But there are species that are in more trouble than others. So you can download uh, a, a seafood watch card from some of these aquariums or places like the New England Aquarium or the Monterey Bay Aquarium. You can go on your computer or you can just get them to send you one, and you can have a little card in your pocket so that when you go to the supermarket, you can say, hey, you know, I'm going to choose to eat mussels instead of codfish because that's a better choice. You're helping the ocean by doing that. It's also been proven that, you know, things like red meat, beef, uses a, has a huge global footprint. You know, they use a lot of water, and it uses a lot of land, and it contributes to climate change. So maybe if instead of eating a hamburger every day, you can eat more vegetables and just eat a hamburger once a week or, or something like that. So you can make choices not only about what you consume, you know, or buy at a store, but like plastic, but also about the things you eat. And then again, spreading the word. 
about this to your friends and family. So I think kids can absolutely um, be together. You could have a club at school, um, you know, an, a Save the Ocean club, and you could bring speakers in, and they could talk about different aspects. You can get scientists from local, you know, science organizations or um, the aquariums and so forth to talk about things so you learn more. I think, you know, the most important message is that it's easy to become complacent. It's easy to do nothing. We just want to sit on the couch and watch TV shows and, you know, be happy. But the more we learn, the more we want to become engaged and we can take ownership of our future. We can shape it into what we want it to be. So the future belongs to you, Summer, and your friends. That's where where it's going to happen. You know, previous generations didn't know mistakes were made and, you know, we have to correct those problems. So the more you guys know, the better off you'll be. Is there anything else you want to add? Well, I have to say, Summer, you had really excellent questions. Those were some of the best interview questions I've ever been asked. So you covered all the bases, as we say. You know, no, I would just say that, um, you know, we talked about a lot of things and we sort of ended on some of the environmental concerns that we have out there. But I want to end on a message of hope. I think that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we are living at this time where we understand some of these problems and that we can absolutely solve them. And it just takes, you know, what you're doing right here. Having, in this case, a podcast where you're asking questions, you're looking for solutions, and you want to share that information. You don't have to have a podcast to do that. Anybody can do this on their own. And I think, you know, that's the message that there is reason to be hopeful. There's a lot of work to be done out there, but we, we live at a time where we can spread information easily and good science, good storytelling, good you know personal experiences is how we get there. So I would thank you very much for your excellent questions and um, believe that your generation is going to save us all. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Oh my gosh, thank you, Ryan Scary, for all the things you've taught us. That was a lot of great things that I've learned about underwater. Now, here are my friends sharing how they like to preserve, protect, or explore nature. Hi, I'm Andy, and I'm seven years old, and I like to protect the environment environment by picking up cans, trash, and other stuff that doesn't help the environment. My name is Siggy Folkstead, Sigborn Winning Bear, and I am seven and a half years old, and I live in Maine, in the United States of America. I had to clean, um bottles. I pick up trash and garbage. My name's Aaron and I'm six years old. I I like to go put on my goggles and go underwater and see where I can see. Hi, my name is Ren Caldwell. I'm nine years old. I live in New York, Maine. I'm going to protect nature by picking up trash. If you'd like to share how you like to preserve, protect, or explore nature, have your parents go to www.naturalnatureyouth.com and have your voice in a future episode. If you like Natural Nature Youth, then be sure to subscribe and 
tell your friends about it so they can subscribe to Natural Nature Youth too. And here is a hint to the next episode. We'll be talking about sustainability. I am Summer, signing off. See you in the next episode.